and welcome to this bonus episode of Celebrity Catch-Up Life After That Thing I Did. If this is your first time here, I'm Genevieve and I've picked out some of my favourite moments from this past season four with my very lovely guests. As usual, we had a big dose of 80s, 90s and noughties nostalgia while we all reminisced and then talked about how their lives unfolded after that thing they did. And this season, I spoke to not one, but two 80s movie legends. First up is Judd Nelson, who famously fist-pumped his way into film history in John Hughes' classic The Breakfast Club, followed by Leah Thompson, who of course played Lorraine, Marty McFly's mum, in Back to the Future. And you really went all in too with your research and preparing for the role, didn't you? Because you went undercover to a high school and posed as a student to see what it was like because you went to boarding school. So it wasn't an experience you were familiar with. Right, right. Public high school was not my own experience, but it was really wonderful that uh, John Hughes had set up for Ali, Emilio and I the opportunity to go to a nearby high school, you know, and just kind of blend in, get the experience. Uh, Allie passed on that. She said that she remembered high school quite clearly and didn't want to repeat it. And the high school that uh, John had chosen had an incredible feature. It had a jock hall and a freak hall. Wow. How perfect. So Emilio and I went and Emilio lasted about five minutes because uh, the outsiders had already come out. So his cover's blown. You know, once someone recognized him, then, then it's done. But no one knew me from Adam. So mm. I had a great time. I met these two guys and they would get me stoned in their Volkswagen bug after school. And I would buy beer because I told them I had a fake ID. But in fact, it was my real ID and I was old enough to get beer. (laughs) It's crazy. It was really a wonderful experience that, you know, I really thought all movies were going to be like that. It was a great part in a great movie. So I'm often asked if I'm bored talking about it, but there's, there's no way I could be. I'm so proud of the movie. I'm so proud that it's stuck around, that generations of people show it to their children and then show it to their children is uh, a gift and an honor that I never dreamed I would have in my life. It's mm. not, nothing that I thought would happen for me. So um, I think that movie is so fascinating because it's you can enjoy it on so many different levels. Um, so many different ways that you can enjoy the movie, uh, and perspectives, you know, if you're just a little kid, you're like, oh, there's poop. It falls on the bad guy. You know, <laughs> if you're, <laughs> if you're a teenager, you're like, oh my God, that, that mother's hitting on her son. And, uh, and then in, if you're older, you, you realize the deeper meaning of the movie, which is, I think that if you have the courage to stand up to Uh, a bully or stand up for your convictions at the right moment, you can not only change your life, but your family's life forever. Regular listeners will know that I usually ease my guests into our chats before we get going. But when Anastasia joined me, there was something I had to get off my chest. I just wanted to get something out of the way first, because as a Genevieve, I am well used to people butchering my name. Both in spelling and saying it, um, I get Guinevere, Jean Vive, Geraldine, randomly. I also oh. get French variations, Jean Vive, yes. Genevieve. And I always correct people. 
because it's my name. So I find it really interesting that the majority of people outside the US, and especially here in England, have been saying your name wrong for the past 22 years. Oh, yeah, completely. Saying Anastasia and not Anastasia. Anastasia. Anastasia, Anastasia. How has this travesty been allowed to continue? You know, I'm because I'm not so adamant, I think, to because it takes away from I don't want to correct them because all of a sudden then the walls up like I've made a judgment to them and whatever we're doing and whether it's an interview or it's a fan, it kind of is almost a snub. So I don't do it because they didn't say, are you Mariah? So I'm actually like, they kind of have a ballpark of where I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, I feel like if you can pronounce Jean-Paul Gaultier, you can pronounce Anastasia, right? It's the same principle. You can pronounce it, but I think sometimes it's just, if, if the news has been saying it in certain ways, I think people just go to what they hear. And I guess I never really, I could have been very, adamant about the news keeping that the same, but you can't keep uh, control of of every country. (laughs) So, you know, Anastasia, like in Italy, they're just like, they give me uh, like seven more A's in my name. So it's okay. It sounds great. (laughs) I mean, you're in good company because Rihanna has been trying to tell everyone for over a decade that people are pronouncing her name wrong and it hasn't sunk in yet. No, no. (laughs) What is it? (laughs) It's Rihanna. But Americans say Rihanna, but it's Rihanna. No, you guys say Rihanna. I say Rihanna. No, we say Rihanna in England. Oh, interesting. I don't know who's saying Rihanna, Rihanna, Rihanna. Oh, I probably am saying Rihanna. I don't know what I'm saying, but Barbara Streisand, <laughs> same thing. Yes. Streisand, Streisand. Yeah. It's, it happens to the best of us. And there you go. You're in good company. There's a, a Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman. People think it's Gal Gadot or Gal Gadot. She's oh, see, there, there's, I might have tried to make it sound cooler too. <laughs> Gal Gadot. It's a, it's, a, it's a troubled life we lead. It's a troubled life we lead. Exactly, girl. <laughs> there are high class problems in our world with our fancy names. Whenever I chat with a singer or a band on the podcast, talk inevitably turns to some of the more rock and roll or slightly cheeky moments they've experienced. And to pals, Carol Decker wasn't short of a rock and roll story. Here she is, followed by former Westlife member Brian McFadden. In um, in your autobiography, you admitted to letting the power of being a star go to your head a bit. Can you share the story of Twiglet Gate, please? <laughs> yeah. That was probably actually fatigue more than... Well, as I let it go to my head, I mean, I just really enjoyed it. I was just a bit full of myself. I don't think I was ever mean to anybody. Hope not. But Twiglet Gate, yeah. So when you go on a big tour, you take everything with you and you take your own catering people, you know, um, and they're fantastic. Out of these flight cases come full kitchens, cookers, everything. So, you know, backstage at Wembley, there'll be a kitchen all of a sudden appears and they cook whatever you want. And, um, you know, all this is agreed before you go on tour, what meals they can do while we're away. And also you have your rider. So this is the stuff that's in your dressing room. So your snacks, your drinks, your bits and your bobs, you know, just to keep you going uh, before showtime. And I had a thing about Twiglets. Absolutely love Twiglets, you know. And so we'd been out in Germany for a long time. And and to be honest, like I say, I was a bit knackered. I was a bit tired and emotional. And for about four nights, I'd had crisps in my room. And I wasn't happy. (laughs) 
So I went stomping, you know, off to <laughs> somebody annoyed me. And I went stomping off with my tour manager going, what the fuck is this? This is crisps. They're not even English because they're German crisps, you know. And I said, <laughs> it says Twiglets on my rider. I'm paying for all of this. I'm paying for everybody's fucking wages. When I say Twiglets, I want Twiglets. <laughs> and this is a reference to a film called Spinal Tap which um, if you haven't seen it, you might not get it. But Jenny, my tour manager, turned to me and went, and is the meat too big for your bread? Because <laughs> in Spinal Tap, you know, Nigel's like trying to fiddle with this tiny bread and massive piece of meat and it's causing them a lot of problems. So that was my Spinal Tap, is the meat too big for your bread problem. And um, when my book came out, Twiglets, I think it's Jacobs who make them, sent, yes. sent me a huge box of Twiglets like that. <laughs> took me a year to finish so there you go uh, speaking of bread did you have a bread roll fight with the cure as well at one point yeah we did at the brits um they didn't like us at all and the brits when i used to do the brits was a very boozy affair people and god knows what else uh, people used to get a bit out of you know um, out of control and we were on a table with fergal sharkey and the cure were on the table next to us and, uh, and with all, you know, I know, I know the lineup of The Cure's changed a lot down the years, like most bands, so I, I don't even know if that person's still in the band. I don't think it was Robert. And it hurts so much because I love their music. This is what really hurts when somebody you really admire thinks you're a wanker. <laughs> it really hurts. <laughs> and they started throwing bre bread rolls at us and calling us shit. And they'd said this one band member had said horrible things about China in your hand in some kind of single review that he'd done. So Fergal Sharkey, and you won't mind my saying this, stood up and looked at them. You know all the makers, they were very goth yeah. looking. And Fergal Sharkey stood up and went, what the fuck's the problem with the Adams family? <laughs> <laughs> so more bread rolls came over. We threw them back. And then I think there might have been some fruit involved, you know. And then um, I, I can't remember who calmed it down. I think various assistants calmed us all down and we just all ignored each other after that, you know. But... There's something quite cheeky about the end of the If I Let You Go video. Would you like to share? Yeah. Well, there's two two things I'll always remember about the If I Let You Go video. First of all, it happened on the night um, that Manchester United won the Champions League in 1999. Because after the video shoot, we, we were driving back to our hotel and the game was on. And we stopped in the tiniest tiniest little old pub in the middle of nowhere that probably held about 10 people and there was 50 of us with the crew and everyone that was in the video all on the bus and we all just piled in and watched the game um, and as a Man United fan that always sticks in my mind but every time I watch the video there's a scene at the very very end where the five of us are all walking away and for that last shot because you can only see our backs we all decided just further crack we'd all hang our penises out the front of our zippers. So, <laughs> Were you walking towards anyone at the time? <laughs> no, that was, luckily enough, we weren't. But when we actually got to the end of the shot, they said, you could actually see that there were a couple of the crew members that were over on the dunes. <laughs> and there were two guys, but they, they found it very funny. Usually after talking about that thing they did, my guests have other things they did, which are equally brilliant that people have fond memories of and much affection for. Here's Leah again, talking about fronting her own sitcom in the 90s, Caroline in the City, and former EastEnders and now West End star Cara Toynton on how she almost didn't put on those Strictly Dancing shoes. 
it was uh, hard. Sitcoms are really hard for me. They were. They were. It was a lot of pressure having my own sitcom. I actually had the greatest time slot in the history of the world between Friends and ER on NBC on Thursday night, I think it was. And uh, so it was a quite a bit of pressure along with having two very small children. Um, I was also building this house. Uh, it was just a lot. But, you know, they always say, if you want something done, a- ask a busy person. Um, I really enjoyed doing a sitcom. It was a challenge. And uh, I'd like to do it again because it's in front of an audience. So, you know, it really challenges you as a performer. And, and telling jokes in that kind of way is, is quite high pressure because I, I wasn't really trained to tell jokes that way. And uh, I still think that show is hilarious. I don't know why it didn't have legs and syndication, but it's a great show. If you find it and watch it now, it's still really funny. And you have a cat. I have a cat. A bizarre thing to have a cat, a trained cat in a sitcom with an audience. <laughs> Did it kind of perform as you expected it? Or, I mean, I always say, you know, like you can't teach a cat to do anything. Although I actually have taught my cat how to high five and return for treats. Oh, but, that's um, so was, was it a good showbiz cat? <laughs> it was a good showbiz cat. And they had stunt cats because if you had to, they, this cat was starred in its own movie. Uh, what was it? It was a movie with Michael Fox doing a voice about a cat and a dog coming home. Homeward Bound. Yeah. I think it was called. So this cat had already starred in a movie. So he's a little snobby. Oh, so it was a diva. Yes. Diva. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the cat was basically just trained to stay. And if you clicked it, it would run to its cage. And so if you had to pick up the cat, it all of a sudden turned into dark matter, it weighed 200 pounds. It was like, I'm going to stay. Uh, Dead weight. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. And we used to make terrible jokes about Italian people all the time. And no one ever wrote a single letter. But one time there was a joke. The cat was wet. And my acerbic assistant said to the cat, he looked at a microwave and he said, you want to dry off? And we got bags of mail. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> bags of mail about how, how stupid that joke was. So after you left EastEnders in 2009, you, of course, did Strictly Come Dancing, which is the British version of Dancing with the Stars for our overseas friends. Yeah. But is it true you were offered it previously but turned it down because you were too nervous? Yeah. And I thought, right, okay, because I was meant to do Strictly the year before and I'd said yes. And it was all sort of signed and sealed, delivered practically, I think. And and then I had a nightmare and I thought, what are you doing? No, this, I love the show, but no, no, I can't. I was such a huge fan of the show. I mean, I was literally in the audience because we were on the BBC. I was in the audience nearly every week. And I think they ended up having to say that, all right, enough, God, give someone else a chance. <laughs> and, um, but I loved it. And, and then, yeah, so I, I ended up having a bit of a nightmare and my agent got me out of it. Cut to a year later, I thought, oh God, if they ask me again, I'd definitely, definitely say yes. And, um, and luckily enough, they did, thank God. And actually, you know what, if I'd done it the year before, you know, many things, it wouldn't have led to maybe the, the path that it did do. So it was the right yeah. thing not to do it the year I, I backed out. Um, so I ended up doing Strictly, which was the, one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done. You're doing something that, you you know, that is completely out of your comfort zone in every sense. But a really one-off life experience that I look back at so fondly. It was brilliant. 
And of course, you ended up winning the show and your life changed again, <laughs> least of all, because people started calling you Cara in the street and not Dawn. I know. And that's the thing that I should have thought about because that was a good positive. I hated that bloody name and it was gone <laughs> after that. So it was worth doing it just for that alone. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I won it. I, I, I still cannot believe that I won the show. Honestly, it's my victory in life and I take it with both hands and I've got that glitter ball upstairs. It's now bald. I heard it's lost its sparkle and all the mirror tiles have fallen it's off. It's a blooming bald grey cardboard ball and I honestly, I, I'm so... <laughs> and I feel like saying to the BBC, I need some maintenance on this, please, if you can get round here and shimmy it on together again. Is it literally made of cardboard? Yeah. <laughs> Outrageous, isn't it? Honestly, I think... <laughs> Did the work experience make it that way? What happened? I know. Is it like a bag for life? You know, when a when bag for life rips, you can take it back to the supermarket and they replace it with a new one. You would <laughs> think so. It should come with a... Lifetime guarantee. A lifetime guarantee <laughs> envelope. I've obviously mislaid somewhere. While we're sitting back and being thoroughly entertained watching TV, spare a thought for those on screen who sometimes are suffering for their art. Man vs Food star Adam Richman certainly did, as well as kids TV legends Dick and Dom. So going back to the food challenges, all people saw was you eating massive amount of food and not seeing what was going on behind the scenes in terms of the preparation that you were doing, skipping meals before a challenge, working out in the morning, drinking lots of water to keep your stomach stretched. And then the aftermath of having to work out again straight after, doing uh-huh. flushes that your doctor prescribed, and you even had habanero poisoning after one challenge. Yep. Did you ever have a moment where you thought, I can't suffer for my anymore <laughs> several 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 and and you know at the same time you have classmates that are doing legit acting I mean, it's the yell school of drama so i have you know um a, a brilliant actor named Leroy mclean who actually has ties to brixton is on fabulous mrs mazel um katherine hahn who is uh, part of WandaVision and Step Brothers was a third year at Yale and she was high in the ascent. My classmate Molik Pancholi was in the cast of 30 Rock and myriad Broadway shows. So here's doing the very thing they were trained for and you almost feel like a clown, you know, to some extent. The other thing is yeah, the challenge is done and you feel like death and you have to do this press conference. You don't want to be an ungrateful ass and not take pictures and autographs and whatever, but you don't feel well. You got to get back. My doctor was adamant about, I need you to get your heart rate elevated right away. And I need you to start this flush because we don't want like all that saturated fat to really allow like artery deposits and what have you. So I'll, I mean, People think that I was gallivanting around the U.S., but that was my crew. Like, they would go out and hang out with, like, you know, the staff and go out and, you know, meet cool people and meet girls and drink and this. And I would have a gallon of water in the hotel gym with my head on the console, walking at first 1.1 miles an hour, like the Bataan Death March, and just, like, uh, slugging this water back. But I'm here to, to have this interview with you because I did those things. But, yes, I have one moment, and I will try to describe this as delicately as possible, but I remember the Man vs. Food commercials had just begun to air. I was in New Orleans, Louisiana, 
having just finished a 180 oyster challenge. I was in my hotel room dealing with just such gastric distress. How about that for deaf PR? <laughs> and I am sitting there just, just feeling, uh, you know, a swirling universe within my, my sternum. And then I can hear the commercial going, man versus food, man versus food. It's like, shut the fuck up. And it was like, it was just this careful what you wish for. You might just get it. But, you know, that was the Faustian bargain I had made. And truthfully, I suffered for it a bit, but I was smart. And as a result, a lot of independent businesses did 80 to 300 percent more business as a result of being on Man versus Food. And to have had some small part in that is uh, a legacy I am extraordinarily proud of. Dom, are you bummed, no pun intended, uh, that you're no longer the world record holder for putting on the most pairs of underpants in a minute? Mm. And do you have any plans to try and regain your title? Am I not? Ouch. No, the record's now 36. What about my ones? I've got my certificates on the on my toilet wall. I've got the most baked beans eaten with a cocktail stick. Um, the most, gla- um, you know, those pretend glass bottles smashed over my head. Um, what was the other one? You, didn't you have a watermelon one, Don, where you had to headbutt watermelons? I did, but I chucked them all in the skip, so I don't know. don't know where they are. Mm. I'm afraid to say that you're both no longer the record holders of the records that you used to hold. Oh. Because uh, I did a search on the Guinness Book of Records website, and, and I'm afraid your, your, your titles have all been superseded. Oh, I'll take them down off the toilet wall now, then. <laughs> the content for the tour then doesn't it yeah you should so you could try the there's a um a new uh, another underpants record which is a 30 second record most pairs put on in 30 seconds and that's only 13 pairs of pants so i feel like maybe you could feasibly try that on tour oh smash that i might do that later <laughs> upstairs after this one of one of the most difficult ones dom had to do was drinking two liters of pop you know fizzy pop in like a minute or something oh it's awful and i think you barfed didn't you oh, it was awful. you threw up in the corner of the uh, bungalow it was uh how many liters is one of those big bottles of like fanta or something like that two liters yeah, yeah it's two, two liters, liters in it yeah with a straw i had to drink that it was awful it was oh yeah with awful. a straw that was it yeah, yeah. it's not as easy. i thought oh, this would be easy here we go but no it wasn't <laughs> Appearances are everything in showbiz, and I often chat with my guests about their image back in the day. Next up is Anastasia, and then Brian, honestly talking about the steps he's taken to maintain his appearance. Let's talk about the glasses then for a second, because that was you know one of the other reasons you show why you didn't get signed, because you didn't look like everyone else. Mm-hmm. And shock horror, you wore glasses. Uh, and as a fellow blind as a bat person, you're my hero for keeping them on, <laughs> by the way, and not succumbing to the pressure to ditch them and wear contacts like I did. Um, I tried. I tried. It was a hard. It's just I was like, ah, I... But you succeeded in making glasses sexy. And uh, and as well as making glasses sexy, you were in a lot of crop tops, low-slung low trousers, very sexy image. Um, but I was really surprised watching old interviews of you where the amount of attention your boobs got. I mean, I saw one interview last night where Jonathan Ross was actually shaking your hand in the interview to congratulate you on them. I mean, that would never happen today. But how did that make you feel at the time? I knew that, put it this way, I had a very sizable situation up there for being as small as I was. And so I think that what I was, you know, in in my choreography, in my head, I'm like, okay, let me show my abs. Therefore, they won't look at my boobs. So that was like an interesting, 
I felt as though if I took attention, you know, I, people comment on them. So great, great, great. Go ahead. Let's let them see that. And little by little, certain outfits uh, in, as I started having my career were lower and I did have a very uh, sizable rack and it would be like, because I wouldn't show it very often when I did show it, you know, guys were like, whoa, like, I didn't know you had all that because you're a rock chick, you know, like you, you don't show it much, but if you show it, bam, I'm, I'm in love with you. And I was always very self-conscious. So what I will say is the advantage of realizing people were looking at them and realizing I was uncomfortable. That's when I got a breast reduction. So all of that in a way, I have to say, was destiny. It was all destiny because in my breast reduction, I found breast cancer. Mm. So there you go with the, you know, turning the negative into a positive and finding that inner lining of instead of feeling like, like an object, my soul took it as, yeah, I think you, you know, you don't want to feel uncomfortable with this and you don't want to be an object and you want your back straight. My mom had her breast reduction. I'm outing my mother right now. She had her <laughs> breast reduction in her sixties. So her level of indentation was, is there it's prominent. And I didn't really want that. And so I think it was just like one of those things where, I, Oh, I have, you know, Christmas off. Let me just, you know, take a couple of whatever ounces, whatever's in there. I don't know. Let's make Let's make a C out of another letter that's much higher. <laughs> well, I'm similar height as you. I'm five foot two on a good day, but I mean, I only could wish to have your babes. I was <laughs> See, this is the thing is that I only could have wished to have, you know, model size and stuff that you can maybe pad and make into boobs, but then you can always disappear. I could never disappear mine. So I felt as though, you know, I'd like to have the option of not always feeling like certain outfits would make me look bigger. And that's when I would show my waist to be like, well, I'm not as big. And that's where the crop top happened, where it's if I was wearing a bigger shirt, nobody knew that I was chiseled underneath, which was completely a fluke. Like I didn't do sit ups or anything. It was just part of my genetic code. You know, I just had those abs and God bless them for when they were there. <laughs> you're, um, you're pretty upfront and honest about your life, talking about both the ups and downs. And the one thing I noted was that you had a hair transplant yeah. in 2018. And usually that's something most male stars would want kept quiet and not address it, even when papers publish pictures or speculation. And you know, sometimes they even get an injunction out to stop people reporting it. <laughs> Why did you decide to speak openly about it? Because it's nothing to be ashamed of, you know. Women get boob jobs. Women get all these things done and it's never been a problem. So, you know, if you're in an industry like I am and, and your hair is quite an important thing, you know, men do have a serious paranoia about going bald. So I had an opportunity to stop that. I was starting to, to go bald at the front. I didn't like it. I plan on being on stage for the rest of my life. So I had an opportunity to do something about it. And I did it. And I wanted to speak openly to, to men to say, this isn't something that you need to be ashamed of mm. or shy of. You know, if, if, it, if there's a chance to fix it, it's the same as going to the dentist. If your two front teeth fall out, 
you're not going to walk around with your two front teeth gone for the rest of your life because you're too proud to admit that you go to a dentist to get fake teeth in, you know what I mean, or or whatever. So to me, getting a hair transplant is pretty much the same as getting your teeth fixed or anything else. You know, people are, we live in a vain world and I didn't want to be bald at 40. Mm. So I got a hair transplant and there's nothing wrong with it. And you know, I've got a couple of friends now who never would have thought about doing it. They've done it. And you know what? The confidence they have now, they feel great. So if you can do anything for yourself. Listen, we're on this planet for a short time, right? You have to enjoy it. You have to be comfortable. And if if your hair is important to you, which it always was to me, I always loved having long hair. You know, I had the McDonald's sign in Westlife. I thought oh, every different haircut. Um, and, and being bald was not a look that I wanted, especially when you've got an egghead like I have. So <laughs> yeah, I got my hair done and I've been delighted ever since. I'm back to having the long hair again and, and I feel great. I wake up every morning, look at my hair and go, that's better. Rather than when, before I got it done, I'd wake up every morning and I'd be pulling back my hairline going, oh, it's getting worse. And I'd be feeling awkward. And I'd be looking at photographs when we're doing photo shoots and seeing, could you see it? And I'd be really conscious of it. So I just got it fixed. Simple as that. My guests have been incredibly open again this series in sharing stories from difficult times in their lives. Judd gave an honest critique of his career and the acting industry, which led to a moment of raw emotion. But first, Savage Garden frontman Darren Hayes opened up about the struggles he faced after the band split. So at the height of Savage Garden's fame, you had a lot of joy, but there was also a lot of sadness um, and a lot of turmoil. You know, you kind of hinted on some of it just before, but your marriage broke down, you were diagnosed with a depressive disorder and you were struggling with your identity. And you described it as feeling like, although you had fame, you felt like an imposter mm -hmm. and those feelings carried on after the band split. Yeah, I mean, it was such a... It was as though three trains collided at the same time. There was an unexpected end to the career. So... I had no plans to be a solo artist. And I, I joke about this a lot, but if I did, I would have chosen a much more interesting solo name. <laughs> you know, Darren sounds it's a fine name, but I sound like a plumber. You know? <laughs> a nice plumber from Essex, not, you know, not, not a, you know. And in fact, so much so that on our demo tapes, I had always called myself Stanley. Stanley's my middle name. I just thought that sounded like a much more interesting name than Darren. So I'd never planned to be a solo artist and I had to quickly think on my feet because the band was ending and I was having to be a solo artist. And what, who, who am I as a solo artist? What's that going to sound like? That, so I had to deal with that. I was divorced and even though I knew it was the right thing to do, I wasn't ready to be in another relationship. I wasn't ready to even fully admit that I was gay. I knew that I was attracted to men. And therefore, that ruled out being married to a woman. And I knew that I wanted to prevent this catastrophic ruining of both of our lives one day, where eventually, you know, I never wanted to cheat on her and I never, ever wanted to be in a situation where we'd had children and then suddenly I broke up a family. So it was a very painful band-aid to rip off because we were still in love, but we ended that marriage. That was a heartbreaking feeling. And then I also left Australia. I moved to New York and I didn't know anybody. And um, this feeling that I had in the pit of my stomach every day, I used to wake up every day and I would, um, I would eat oatmeal for breakfast because 
my naive 24-year-old mind thought, the 26-year-old mind thought that it was indigestion. And I thought if I ate something heavy like oatmeal, that it would squash that awful feeling down, that feeling of dread. And it was through therapy that I eventually realized um, that that was anxiety and that that anxiety was a result of um, a major depressive disorder. So very, very difficult period of time for me, you know, the pressure to continue the success of the band when it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but then I didn't want to retire and um, didn't love who I was, didn't know who I was. Yeah, very, very painful time. And, and you can look back on that period and you can see I was very deeply sad. Very, very different person to the person I am today. And of course, the downside of doing something successful is that people expect you to do it over and over again, which is impossible to do. Um, and I read you say somewhere that you swim better in criticism than in praise. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's like, you know, they tell you, they tell you, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. It's not getting knocked down. It's what you do after you've knocked down. You have to get up, right? So, you know, all these metaphors for um, when it doesn't work out. So what happens if it does work out? What do you do then? Are you held against your past success? Yes. Uh, it's always that way. How much more terrible it must be if you're a beautiful woman and you're 20. And now you're, a, you're that same beautiful woman at 40. You're held, you're judged against yourself when you were 20. Like that's completely inappropriate. That's insane. And we do it all the time. So that's why it seems to me that what have I done since that one? It seems to me maybe really you could call it nothing. I've done nothing since then. The jockey that rode secretariat to those three races to win the Triple Crown has won races since. Is not like it's not, he didn't disappear, but he's really ridden no horses since Secretariat. Really? Well, so you have more than 120 credits to your name. And I'm wondering, kind of on this theme, and, and, and as your dad once said to you in an effort to put you off acting, that it's a profession where merit isn't always rewarded. <laughs> do you think he was right? And if so, what keeps you coming back for more? Uh, do I think he was right? Yes, absolutely. Um, that I, was so blind to his, you know, incredible advice is not unusual. You know, I, my dad's always right. And it always takes me a while to finally agree with him. Um, yeah, uh, it's odd. You can do really good work. And um, if it's not seen by a lot of people, unless you feel comfortable with your progress as a professional, it's not going to do anything to help your career. And you can do terrible work in a, terrible movie that's commercially successful and you're sitting pretty. So it is an odd profession that way. You know, what, what do they say? Once a star, always a threat, but maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe that keeps you returning to a spot that once maybe there was something growing there, but now it's just barren. Maybe it's that blind hope or that false belief in yourself that keeps you coming back for more beatings. I don't know. It's a strange job in which you are required to be represented. I can't speak for myself at the beginning, only if my representatives have made an argument on my behalf good enough for me to be able to get in a room and just try to see if I can get to the next round of things. Wow. 
not many jobs where you have a lot of fish sucking at your belly as you try and swim. You can even sense from my tone. There are things that aren't fair, but no one said it was going to be fair. We believe it's going to be fair. I don't know why. Maybe when we're little, our parents go, it's going to be okay. Well, it is going to be okay because that's what it's going to be. It is what it is. Whether you're okay with it or not doesn't matter. So maybe it's better to make yourself okay with it. And since we're actors, you got to make ourselves be whatever anyway. It is a brutal business. <laughs> so if we, yeah. fast forward, if, we, if we fast forward a few years, so you, you right. then turned to TV and starred in Suddenly Susan for three seasons at a time when it was perhaps not really a fashionable move for film actors and was almost seen as demotion at the time compared to now where you can't move for film actors on the small screen. But I noticed you haven't really done a huge amount of TV since, certainly not as a series regular. Is TV just not for you? No, I, I wouldn't say that at all. I say that, uh, no, I mean, I like all forms of it, you know, TV, live theater, movies, all of it. So it's not for um, my lack of interest. A lot of times it's, again, it's like, what projects am I aware of? How am I made aware of those projects? When in the process of the casting of a project do I find out about it? I think that when SAG and AFTRA merged, a huge groundswell of change happened that we warned of. It was not a surprise. There was this sense that new media was going to create a problem in terms of whether we're able to make a living acting. And what has happened as a result is that it's very dangerous for the boutique agencies. So they need to have lots of clients because the earnings are much less. So you've got to have a lot of people. So in my situation, I have, uh, I'm with an agency that has two agents one assistant, and 70 clients. Wow. Now, I'm not Einstein, but I can do math. And that's not a good situation for those 70 people. And that's not different for really anyone else. It's not like, oh, oh poor me, poor me, pour me a drink. Like, no, no, no. It's like, this is the way it is now. So things are different in terms of then and now. In addition to the fact that then and now happens when you, you know, get older. You know, that notion when you read a script and you're not reading for the lead, you're reading for the dad of the lead. Well, that's the way it goes. That's not depressing. What's depressing is finding out about projects after there's no chance. It's a consistent problem. Regular listeners will also know that I usually end my chats with a question that's a bit lighthearted and touches on something a bit more personal to the guest. And I love these two clips from Darren and Cara talking about things they love. Before we end, I want to quickly talk about Star Wars. Oh, please. Oh, yes. You're a massive Star Wars fan. Yeah, it's the only reason I'm, I'm in this business is so I can talk about Star Wars. Yes. From washing the dishes as C-3PA when you were a child to owning a full collection of original yeah. figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you even auditioned for a part in episode two. Sadly didn't get it. What is it about Empire Strikes Back that makes it, in your opinion, the best film in the saga? Well, controversially, it's because George Lucas didn't direct it or write it, which... Nothing against George. I think he's a visionary. My take about that film is that, um, well, first of all, Irvin Kirshner is a genius and uh, the screenwriter, obviously, um, whose name escapes me right now, um, but um, he obviously is uh, someone who also wrote The Big Chill. He co-wrote uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, he also 
co-wrote uh, some of the new Star Wars movies. Um, so you'll have to Google who that is if you're listening. <laughs> I just think it's a brilliantly written script, and I think Star Wars itself was a very simple, beautiful fairy tale. George created this universe, and uh, a lot of credit should go to Marsha Lucas, who was his wife at the time, who did an incredible editing job, and I believe she edited The Empire Strikes Back as well. But what I love about the film is the development of the Princess Leia character even further. You know, I love how Princess Leia in Star Wars was just, she broke the mold of what a princess was, but she didn't need rescuing. And in this film, she also doesn't need a man's love. Han Solo tries all of his moves and she's just like, look, I can fix this thing myself. I don't need you to, you know, she, she decides when the relationship is going to start, not him which is fantastic. I love that nobody wins. Um, nobody gets what they want. It's an absolute mess. We're left with everyone um, completely in a cliffhanger. You know, It's like the end of a great uh, Stranger Things series finale. It just, it, it's wonderful. Also, you know, it's like every teenager rebelling against their parent. You know, Luke does all this training with Yoda and they say, don't, don't go. If you, if you leave university, you'll never get a job. You know, essentially they say, if you leave the training now, you might save your friends, but you'll risk everything you fought for. And what does he do? Leaves. And does he help his friends? Not really. They, they didn't need him anyway. Um, and I love that about the film. It's just real life and also Luke really, really kicks butt in that film. It's fantastic. Uh, I saw you say a while ago that this was a guilty pleasure of yours, so I don't know if it still is or not. What is it about Julio Iglesias that you love most? <laughs> <laughs> I love him so much. Oh, God, I hope I get to see him live one day. I, um, Do you know, it's a nostalgic thing again. I grew up listening to Julio Iglesias and we would spend all of our summer in Spain and um, that was our soundtrack. Julio and Gypsy Kings was all we listened to for eight weeks or whatever it was. Me too. And um, really, you you share this passion. Uh, not in Spain, but um, my, my parents were massive big lovers of the Gypsy Kings and my mum loved Julio Iglesias. So I had car journeys listening to to all the girls I've loved before. before you know. <laughs> oh, that's the, that's my first on my playlist when I need a bit of Julio in my life. God, we are like senorita sisters here. <laughs> so like a blood sister thing. Bonded by Julio. It's huge. I've not, not met many of us, so we are bonded for life now. <laughs> I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I put a lot of effort into researching my guests before I chat with them. And it's really lovely when they recognise it. I'll leave you with my favourite moments this series when I was speaking with Adam, who reacted in the funniest and most lovely way to my first and last questions to him. But before that, I want to say thanks again for tuning in this season. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. And special thanks if you're one of the amazing people who've supported and donated to help keep the podcast going this series. And of course, a huge thank you to all my fantastic guests for generously giving me their time. Season 5 of Celebrity Catch-Up will begin in a couple of weeks and I have a stunking first guest for you, so if you haven't already, well, subscribe now so you'll be the first to know when it comes out. Until next time, thanks for listening. 
I guess it's easy to forget because it's timeless and Man vs. Food is on TV literally every day here in England. That's wonderful. But it started almost... 15 years ago and you only did it for three seasons 59 episodes and you've not actually filmed an eating challenge since 2010 so let's rewind back to the beginning okay you were a yale drama school graduate and had been a jobbing actor for five years when you heard about auditions for man versus food or pig out as it was originally called and you went through six rounds of auditions for the privilege of just to record a teaser trailer in the hope the show would get picked up but given that you had kept a meticulous food journal since 1995 of everywhere you eaten across america surely you were destined to be the perfect man for this job thank you I'm flattered that you think so. And by the way, kudos on the most prodigious research ever. Like, <laughs> I feel like, like, like I could be assassinated and you could like fill <laughs> in. Adam's, Adam's still here. I know everything about him. But bravo, bravo for sorting the wheat from the chaff. I am, um, with the exception of acknowledging how long ago it was, which makes me feel like, hello, granddad. <laughs> I feel... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very flattered. Thank you so much. And thank you for your accuracy. You're welcome. I try. Yes, I'm not dead, nor have ever died, nor have ever had heart problems, thank God. So let's, let's, let's separate the rumors from the factoids, people. <laughs> you have a proper foodie's kitchen. Please tell me more about your cupboard filled with salts from around the world. <laughs> How many do you have? And is there one that only comes out for special occasions? Oh my God, I love you so much, mate. Like, honestly, any young people listening to this, this is your model for research. This this is, <laughs> if you want to do any type of chat show, or someone on a network, give this woman a show because I want to see her go, Harrison Ford, you had a hangnail when you were 17 years old. <laughs> So, you know, tell me more, you know what I mean? Tell me more about that time you farted in church. <laughs> so, God damn, you're awesome. <laughs>